Welcome to the Noble View podcast. Thanks for listening, and we are excited you're with us. My name is Mike Kalin, the Director of Teaching and Learning at Nobles, and I'll be your host today. Uh, as always, first want to explain the purpose of the podcast and what we're hoping to provide you. So on the podcast, we speak with faculty and staff members, all involved with our work related to teaching and learning, academic technology, DEI culture and practices, socio-emotional learning, and more. Our faculty and staff here have a great deal of expertise on a wide range of subjects, and through the podcast, we hope to learn from our guests who provide insight into the opportunities and challenges in the fascinating and complex world of education. So today, we're very excited to speak with Michael Polbaum, a member of our history department, director of assembly programming, faculty advisor to our student newspaper, The Nobleman, and a member of the Nobles class of 2008, among many other roles and responsibilities. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, so we're going to start with high school. Oh. Uh, prior to your role as a mentor to others, thinking about your memories as a student. So what were some of those fond memories when you were a student here? Uh, yeah, most of most of the memories uh, of that I have at Nobles are, are fond. I think I would probably be a sociopath if I came back and I didn't have a great time here. But um, the place where most of those memories were formed were the theater uh, and working in the Nobles Theater Collective. Uh, when I got here in 2004, you know, the, the, we Dan had already built a, a fairly strong program here, but it was really starting to pick up. We had broken ground that year on the new art center. It opened my junior year. Um, and once, once you really designate that space for a program, it really allows that program to flourish. And so my afternoons were by far my afternoons and my early mornings, because I was also on the assembly booth crew, were by far the, the best parts of the day, which was Can a nice way to... Can you explain a little bit what that assembly booth crew entails? Yeah, so so it, uh, assembly, and this is true to today, the, uh, the booth crew is a group of students who are tasked with overseeing and running our uh, morning assembly from a technical standpoint. So doing lights, sound, slides and projections, moving you know, anything from like scenery to tables to, to basketball hoops, whatever is happening on stage, they're making sure that that, that can be done. Um, and so I did that for three years from my sophomore year through to my senior year. Uh, and that it was, it, you know, it, it's all about, you know, when I think back about why I loved the place, the things that I loved here, it's because of the communities that, that we built and fostered. Um, and that was largely, in, in many respects, driven by the passion and love uh, of of the work by our faculty members. Um, just seeing people like Dan Halperin and Mel Wood and Yvonne Nieves, uh, who were who were those latter two are no longer on faculty, but their their commitment to to the program was um, infectious. It's always really meaningful to speak with Nobles alums, and I'm also interested in the historical perspective that Nobles alums have who are working here. That we who are not Nobles alums do not. I was curious about, from your perspective, it's a huge question, but how has the Nobles evolved and changed since you were a student who graduated in 2008? Yeah, I think it's it's sort of contradictory. I think the school has has grown to offer more while the students are partaking in less. And so the, the opportunities uh, are broader and richer here, but the student the individual student 
is doing only is doing fewer of them, but doing it in more depth. So like we're basically what I'm talking about is specialization. And I'm like when I think about the athletes in my class, we had some phenomenal athletes. Most of them played their sports here and nowhere else. There were some sports that had significant club participation, but most kids weren't. Most, if you took your random varsity kid, they weren't necessarily on on a club team. Today, they're almost all on club teams. Uh, when you think about our theater program, we have kids who have been doing very um, involved and intense uh, theater programs, singing programs, since they were like six years old. And so, just the level of um, engagement is deeper. But it's not it's not the same breath that we used to have. And I was only there in the ops. Like if you talk to any of the grads from the you know '80s and '90s, you know Melissa Lyons used to do a varsity sport, and then she did the musical because the musical rehearsal was seven to nine in the night at night. And so as we've moved to move things to try in in, in the vein of of well being for our, our students, it also you know if you cram everything into the eight to three they're going to have to make those choices as well. Yeah. Oh, it's a really interesting point. I think one well taken. I think there's a lot of conversation about specialization. I coach in the athletic program. And I think, Michael, you're certainly right. Athletes are more specialized than they ever have been. And I think there's something to be gained from that. You mentioned that word depth, which I think does occur. But then there's also something lost when students don't get an opportunity to partake in activities that they may not even know they enjoy until they do it. So it'll be curious to see if we can combat that specialization and tide, turn the tide again. I think it's one that hits every single independent school in our area and all schools across the country with a lot of different factors. But it's interesting to know, um, even yeah. as recently as when you graduated, that it wasn't as specialized as it is today. Yeah. I mean, the other thing, just to add on quickly, is kids are, are, are so much more stressed today. That. Like, and we were we were we were anxious kids in you know 15 20 years ago but the level of pressure that they feel like we were just we were stressed out because the teenagers are gonna be stressed out and we were doing 800 things but we never thought of things as as in in such stark terms as so many of our students do today where they really think that that a lot of this stuff is of like the utmost importance the highest priorities. Um, and, and that is a big shift, not to mention the college scene has shifted dramatically, which I think adds to a lot of that stress. Yeah. Agreed. Even in my time here, I've seen a transition. And like you said, the high stakes nature of everything, and I would include extracurricular activities. Like sometimes athletes feel like if they don't have the perfect season, then they have sometimes somehow failed. I think another challenge that we have as educators to try and combat that as well which is not an easy task either. So, you know, you alluded to this earlier about your fond memories as a Noble student, but I'm sure you had many other opportunities post-college about where you wanted to work and be and have a vocation. So what attracted you to come back here? Yeah, uh, I had been working in politics for uh, three years prior to coming back here. Uh, and the job that I had uh, right before I, I, I made the switch to Noble was I was a vice president at a uh, a government relations uh, lobbying firm. And I had just spent too many evenings at Robert DeLeo uh, fundraisers. He was the speaker of that Massachusetts House at the time, um, just trying to 
get in front of him and hand him checks and ask for meetings. And that just felt really gross. And I, th- I think the, the line I use is like, you know, I was looking for a life with a lot less graft and a lot more grace. And so I think um, when the opportunity came to to look for a new a new path and Greg Croak, who was the director of graduate affairs, had posted on his Facebook page that he was looking for a new associate director. Um, I jumped at that opportunity. I was also like, oh, I'll, I'll apply to law school while I do this thing for a year. I come back. I get, I'm very lucky that Lisa and, and George uh, hired me. And so I, I come back that uh, August of 2015, uh, and Dan Halpern immediately reaches out to say, hey, can you help us on the Afternoons in the Theater program? I say sure, and so I oversee the student-directed plays that that fall, and it was like the moment I started working uh, with kids. I was like, "Oh no, this is the thing. This is like what I really want to do." And it was like it was it was shockingly immediate. It was you know I you know I had enjoyed doing the development stuff that I had been doing for a few weeks, but once I got into the rehearsal room, I was like, "Oh no, this is this is this is it." That's very cool. That's a very cool story. I've really enjoyed, it's amazing how many of our faculty and colleagues and staff have circuitous journeys to some extent. I mean, very few immediately know their passion or, you know, immediately know they want to be teachers. And you certainly seem like one of them as well, which is really cool. And I know, uh, as an aside, you've brought your political expertise into the classroom and outside of the classroom, which has been an asset for the school uh, as well. So that, that's something that we're lucky to have. So let's Thank shift you. to one of your other roles sure. that I mentioned earlier as director of assembly programming. Uh, for those that know a lot about our culture here at Nobles, they know that assembly is in some ways the central unifying experience that all of our students have four or five days a week. I'm just curious, it's a huge role to be the director of assembly programming, but I'm sure some pressure involved. So sort of what are the opportunities and challenges associated with serving in that leadership role? Yeah, so uh, the opportunities are significant. Um, you know, I think if you were to tell most uh, high schools or any school of any level that we are giving you the opportunity to have the entire community together for 20 minutes a day, I think a lot would jump at that opportunity to, to, to tone set and get the messages out there and to build up that community. I think Nobles is quite lucky that we have had this long tradition of assemblies where you have this expectation that like of course we're we're, of course we're going to spend 20 minutes every morning together as a as a community you know it it the heart of this program began in many respects with ted gleason obviously elliot elliot putnam who was the head of school here in the the 40s 50s and 60s used it in a in a more quasi-religious way Ted Gleason, who was a reverend, also used it in a quasi-religious way, but really brought to life this idea of, of a family component or I, family view of this of this place, uh, and that idea of family rings really true to me. I, I've had a I had a before he passed away, I had a couple of conversations with the Reverend Gleason and, and and talking about those that sense of family as a key cornerstone of this place still resonates for me. Um, as I look to to program uh, program assembly, so the opportunities to to bring everyone together to have a shared experience, that idea of sharing something in common, whether you're a sixty uh, in seventh grade or you're a senior, whether you're a member of our communication staff or our business office 
or an English teacher, we're all in this space together, um, experiencing whether it's a tremendous performance or uh, an informative um, presentation or someone just trying something new and fun and maybe they're falling on their face, but we're there to like pick them up and clap for them and sort of bring them off stage with that, with that rousing applause. And I think there's real power uh, in that, in, in, in an ability to, to formulate those, those connections. One might even say forge those connections. The challenges are, are equally uh, immense um, in the sense that it is a very public job that I have. Um, when things go well, it, it's great. Everyone sees it. When things don't go well, everyone sees it. Um, and uh, there is an immense pressure to make sure that no one, well, not no one, but that the vast majority of people aren't feeling like uh, we're wasting their, their, their 20 minutes in the morning. Um, kids are tired. Faculty are tired. Uh, faculty have, have, have their own kids to deal with for drop-off. Um, for a school and daycare and whatever else is happening in their lives. Um, and so the pressure to, to adequately fill, uh, program that time uh, can, can be great. Um, and to make sure that it is done in an equitable and inclusive way, to make sure that it is being done in a way that lifts up uh, all community voices at one point or another. You're not going to fit everything into 20 minutes, but over the course of a quarter or a semester, making sure we're telling a full story uh, uh, of our community is 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 important and, and and also really hard. So as I've been doing this, this is now my second full year doing it, looking to find ways to bring in more voices, looking for ways to uh, tap into the potential of our community. So this way, it's not like a Michael Polbaum show, but rather it is the Noble show. And I think that has been a real um, growth area for me over the last two years. My, my inclination for everything is to say, all right, what am I, what am I going to do to fix this thing that, that may not be working, whether that's in my class or at home or wherever. And sometimes the, the job shouldn't be like, how am I going to personally do it? But how am I going to find the right people to to fill those gaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the leadership challenge is, is finding the people that can help you uh, accomplish that goal. Oh, it's really great to hear you so eloquently speak about this. I, I think that role is one of the most underappreciated roles of the school. And you alluded to this, but I think nobody to some extent notices as much when things go well, but whether it be student or faculty, are very quick to jump on when it doesn't. And yeah. so to be in that role where you're constantly having to negotiate all the different constituencies. It, it's been really impressive to watch, yeah. well, but I you. can sympathize with the challenges for yeah. sure. And, and uh, one of the, one of yeah. the, up, just to, to add on, one of the, one of the upsides of, I think of assembly is, you know, it's, I've used other ways to, to describe it, but I'm, I'm sticking with this one now. It, it is the nervous system of our school in the sense that it is responding to the stimuli that the rest of the community is feeling. And so when the community is, is feeling a sort of down. You're deep in January. Everyone's sad. It's dark. We haven't seen the sun in three months. You feel that in assembly too. And so in many ways, that's a challenge. It's also the opportunity for us to see in real time where we are as a community to be able to take that temperature and say, oh, well, we could use a pick-me-up. So you know, Alex Gallagher, who oversees our student government, 
order 700 donuts from Duncan and they're there right after assembly, right? So it allows us to have those those uh, opportunities to sort of test the water, um, which is a, you know, I would highly recommend it to any school that, that may be listening. Yeah, no, again, it, it definitely, it makes sense. And, it, and it's really just a, a privilege to hear you speak about sort of all the thought that goes into it. Because again, for those of us who have the privilege also just coming into assembly every day, sitting down and watching, there's not probably as much thought that goes into what are all the different decisions that were made to get us to this point. So again, I think thank you on behalf of the Nobles community. Um, thank you. For sure. And shifting to another very significant role at the school and also another challenging one, hmm. you mentioned your faculty advisor to our student newspaper, The Nobleman. And I guess I would ask you the same question about being director of assembly programming. Um, that's also another very public role in some ways with some pretty big implications uh, in terms of effect on the community. So what are some of the opportunities that you've had and what are the challenges associated with serving as faculty advisor to our student newspaper? Yeah, so the way we structure our newspaper here is 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 unique. And I, I don't see, the, I haven't, actually haven't seen the system at, elsewhere. Uh, it is not an extracurricular. It is an academic class. And so, you know, the opportunities to leverage that as a means to... Um, both educate our, our student journalists around journalistic standards and ethics and things like that, uh, while also keeping them, you know, honest to deadlines is really great. You know, the, the, the other upside of this is like, this is the ultimate in project-based learning. Um, like there is, you know, I try to bring in PBL into a bunch of my history classes, but there is nothing that is ever going to match what, what we do with the nobleman. Like if we're, we're producing nine to 10 issues a year, we have very firm deadlines. There's a very clear purpose as to why they're doing it. It's a lived real experience. Like we're just pulling out all the PBL stuff that, 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 that we try to create in the classroom. So that's great, right? The opportunities for them to really feel ownership over the work that they are doing it is a student-run paper, really in the truest of senses. I and Alicia Scott Heiser, who's my, my co-advisor for it, we really very much view ourselves as guardrails to ensure that they aren't going to go, you know, wildly off base with an article, offend the community in any way, things like that. But other than that, they have fairly wide, a wide breath, a berth to to sort of maneuver this this gargantuan paper around. Uh, which is great, but also brings with the challenges of getting kids to recognize the power that they have uh, and the role that they have in, in our community, that they, as much as assembly, can be that tone-setting um, voice. Uh, and that that is significant, not to mention, you know, we don't really have a comment section for folks to respond to what they're saying and what they're writing. And so in many respects, what they write is the last word on a, on a subject. And that can be that can be daunting uh, for them to recognize, and sometimes they forget it, and that's where we run into, into some challenges. So you mentioned serving as a guardrail. I'm just curious how often those exchanges take place, or do students, for the most part, have a decent sense of what is sort of available to them in terms of their purview and, and what might be really off base and be problematic? Uh, it depends on who my editors are. <laughs> um, generally speaking. Generally speaking, actually, the reality is kids censor themselves more than I do. Oh, and in many, in many instances, 
I'm actually pushing them to go further on an issue and to actually tackle a topic that they think may be off limits or forbidden. I, I give the school a lot of credit. And I think um, Kathy and Allison and, and Michael Denning before Allison uh, was here was was very vocal on this point. Like the administration is fair game. Like we can go after the school and school policy as long as we are doing our duty to get their take on it and their say. We can take on most issues. Where we where we run into ch- challenges is we are a community newspaper, we are an academic tool, uh, and we are an independent. Uh, school, which means your First Amendment rights don't exist here, right? We can tell you you can't say that, this or that. And so we don't want to do the latter, right? We don't want to say you can't do this. So it's my job to find ways, like if you want to write about discipline, well, you can't write about the case of the kid getting suspended for X, Y, or Z, and you can't name the kid. But why don't we talk about the process? Or why don't we talk about what are your concerns about the disciplinary process? What are your concerns about transparency? That's all fair game. We can talk about that stuff. We just mm-hmm. aren't going to single single out individuals and, and and shine a light on you know their worst day. Very cool. Very interesting. Um, very so very stressful too. If I yeah. like out of all of the jobs, I lose the most sleep over the nobleman position. Uh, okay, by far. Uh, that doesn't surprise me. I, I've always thought every time I read a nobleman article, and to your point many of them are pretty critical sometimes of institutional policies or school administrative policies. And I also give our administration a lot of credit for letting those articles fly. Um, But I can imagine trying to not censor, but guide smoothly and softly can't be easy. Yeah. Um, So we've been talking a lot about, you know, your work outside of the classroom, but you're very successful inside in the classroom. And so I was just wondering, first of all, if you can tell our listeners what history classes you're currently teaching and what's your favorite class to teach and why? Yeah, so I teach, um, so I do teach that journalism class, but I'm going to put that off the side we covered, we talked about that. I, I teach uh, our ninth grade world history class, which uh, is currently called History of the Human Community, though that will change for next year. Um, and then I also teach uh, AP European history uh, to 11th graders with a couple of seniors thrown in there as well. But that is also going to change next year when we get rid of AP Euro as our, as our not technically, but in our de facto third year history course. My favorite to teach um, content wise is actually probably our ninth grade world history course. I, I really love the way that we have designed it to focus on three specific eras of time. So age of empire, age of imperialism, age of nationalism, I have to give a, uh, my colleague Hannah Puckett, all the credit in, in helping to create uh, that framework. Um, you know, one of the challenges of teaching world history is the recognition that you aren't going to teach all of world history. And so being um, intentional about and, and owning that we aren't teaching everything, but thinking about like, well, then what is it that we want them to get out of that course? Um, the challenge is ninth graders can be challenging. And, and, um, and one thing that we have, we have seen in the last few years is, you know, with each successive class, we're seeing the, the outcome of the COVID pandemic, uh, and it, it manifests itself in different ways with each group. And so, 
you know, I think the earliest ones were like, they weren't doing group projects very well together because they didn't really know how to work together because they had been in their homes for a year and a half. Today, it's like, well, actually, we're realizing their reading isn't very good. Like they're not, their, their ability to even see words and sound them out and reckon, and, and, and de- like we're talking about decoding in, in literacy. Uh, and we're seeing that as a challenge. We're seeing it as a challenge in our middle school. Uh, we're starting to see it as a challenge as these kids come up into ninth grade, because these are now kids that we're missing out on very crucial elementary education. And that is, so, so that's the challenge that I'm seeing with ninth grade. Eventually that'll be, would be a challenge for 11th grade. You know, I like, I like the, the freedom that 11th graders feel. They're a little bit more themselves. They they feel they're more comfortable in the school. Um, they're willing to be a little bit more silly in class. Um, our ninth graders, I guess this goes back to the whole stress thing. They're just, they're, they're, they're not as silly as they, as they used to be. They're, they're just, they come in here and they're already freaking out about X, Y, or Z. It's like, guys, this is, you're 15. Like, let's just have some fun. Um, we get them there. I get them there. You know, if you, if you walk into my classroom um, and you had no idea who I am or what I was, you'd say, like, I don't think this guy has very good control over his room. <laughs> but that is that is like an, a pedagogy like that is that is my efforts is like it's the same sort of uh, approach I try to take to assembly. Like for me, the best assembly is one in which everyone thinks the wheels are totally falling off the cart, but I know exactly where the cart's going. I want my classroom to sort of feel at times like the wheels have fallen off, but I still actually know exactly where this cart is going and I'm going to get us exactly where we need to be. But the kids are going to be like, where what's going on as long as they still feel secure in that cart i'm good with that when they start uh, feeling insecure it's like oh now we really got to put the wheels back on but i like the metaphors i like the metaphors yeah. and it's actually a good transition to the next question i was going to ask you so you now have had a significant amount of experience in the classroom just always curious about how people think about teaching and particularly effective excellent teaching so from your perspective you know what qualities define an excellent educator in 2024? Uh, if I distill it to a word, I would say intentionality. Intentionality in our ability to, to formulate relationships with our students. Uh, intentionality in the homework and assignments and assessments that we give. And intentionality in the way that we assess those things. I, th- I think if we, you know, f- I, I think I, I'm a firm believer in our in our school's uh, views that 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 human connection is at the forefront of all that we do. Um, if I don't have a connection with my class, I'm not going to be able to be as an effective as, as a teacher as I could be. So that's always first and foremost. And then, and then it's about like being able to clearly, succinctly get across the content in order for them to be able to practice the skills. I'm very much a skill first type of guy. You know, I, you know, I'm sure there are folks in, the, in my department who would disagree with me, but like, if, if I'm getting kids to leave my class and they don't really know, they don't remember in three or five years, you know, why Suleiman was known as Suleiman, the Magnificent of the Ottoman Empire, I'm okay with that. But if they're able to uh, formulate an argument, support it with, with specific evidence and explain their, their rationale in choosing that evidence through robust analysis, I'm good like that job well done. I would say, um, you know, I think the, you know, we, we have a new schedule this year. And one of the things I've been really thinking about and hopefully will 
better implement next year is utilizing this extra time that we have in classrooms to really focus on that, that skill development. Um, one of the things that I really pride myself on is, is, is teaching writing. And the way that I, I teach it is, is a very iterative process. Like every single thing a kid writes can be rewritten as many times as they want it to be. Um, and I will continuously regrade and co- give comments and feedback back on that work. It's, it can be exhausting. The good news is that I have a lot of students who don't take me up on that all the time, though I wish that they would. But that, I mean, that's, that is what uh, it is. It's all about is just iterating the skill over and over again and just reworking, reworking, reworking. I could not agree more. I would echo everything that you just said as a, as a history and English teacher. I also replicate that practice of allowing almost always students to continue to rewrite their writing in the hopes of actually doing something with the feedback that we as teachers spend so much time providing. It always makes me nervous that it ends up in the recycling bin if they don't have an opportunity to do something with the feedback. What you're really good at, Mike, is is that I need to add more into is the reflective aspect of it and like having them as they're as they're rewriting and working, also reflecting back on like, what is it that I'm doing as I'm rewriting? What is it that I'm seeing in the comments and the feedback that I'm getting? Um, you know, my, my, so my mom was a teacher. She was originally a lawyer in the 1990s. I went to Harvard ed school, got her master's and then taught uh, mostly in public schools. And she was huge into the portfolio work and, and okay. having kids um, utilize, utilize a portfolio. And so I just remember I was in, she went back, she began teaching when I was in second grade. So I just always remember her talking about the importance of reflection and, and, and sort of being able to see sort of the bigger picture of the student's work over time. And, you know, that's always sort of ingrained in the back of my head. I could do a better job of doing some of that stuff, but. I think that's the exciting, to me, that's the exciting thing about what we do as our craft is that there's always something more that I think we can think about and improve. And it doesn't matter how long any of us have been doing it. And we're lucky to have colleagues who have been doing this for decades and decades yeah. here, but I, I admire our colleagues for constantly trying to grow. There's, again, and that, always and, something. Yeah. And in many yeah. research, that, I guess that's the other answer to your question about what makes an excellent teacher is someone who is always willing to be the student and someone who's always willing to continuously learn and grow. And that was one of the big things. I did a grad program uh, at UPenn last year and that was one of the big things that I walked away from that program recognizing is like, what makes a school great is a school that is a learning to learn environment that is a, you know, we're all students um, and we're constantly looking to grow and improve. Amen. So this has been wonderful. We're almost out of time, but anything else on your mind relating to, you know, anything we've discussed, teaching your multiple roles, your perspective on nobles over time? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, well, the one thing that, you know, you mentioned how a lot of the things that I do are very public. And I think that that is, has given me the opportunity to recognize that probably one of the most important traits that I or any other uh, school person can have is just a, a general sense of humility and a knowledge that like we don't, we don't know what we don't know, but we should strive to recognize where we can continue to grow and where we continue to learn. And in so many respects, this goes back to what I, where I started, like, what did I love about this place? It was the adults in the community that gave it their all, that committed to this place 120% and committed to their students 120%. And it's that type of commitment and love of, of learning and teaching 
um, that trickles down to create a really strong and robust learning community. And, you know, I'm excited about the folks that we have here who are doing that uh, for our current student body. And I think that's what, what can help set schools apart from each other is if we are able to continue to put ourselves all in in this work and recognizing that that, that has significant impact on kids' lives from here until, you know, they're 90 years old. So well put. And I, and I think you do. You speak on behalf of our faculty with those eloquent words. So before we finish up, I just wanted to put a quick plug in for the podcast itself. Um, you can hopefully tell how thoughtful Michael was in his responses. We've been really lucky to have some other great interviews with faculty that have been willing to share their stories and perspectives. So if you get the chance, the Nobles U podcast is available on Apple and Spotify. And if you don't, hopefully you'll see us here next time. Thank you again, Michael. Thank you.